Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. You have me and I'm flying solo yet again. Everybody has abandoned me like we abandoned Chris only a few months ago. But today my guest is Tim Bryan, who's a director of the Brunel Institute and a historian who specialises in the history of the Great Western Railway and works of Isambard Kingdom, Brunel. And he's here to talk to us about his new book, Iron, Stone and Steam. Hi, Tim. Hi. Really interested in getting to know a little bit more about this because everyone knows when it comes to something technical, I am the wrong person to be talking to. Well, don't worry. I mean, my book hopefully is more about social history than um, than uh, technical history. So um, I know how steam locomotives work, but there are plenty of better people qualified to to do that. So hopefully, my book is more about nineteenth the 19th century and Brunel and um, the impact that his railways had on on the world then. Well, it's a really important time, especially you had the Industrial Revolution, the Victorian period, everything was booming. So this is the ideal time to be writing about this. Yeah, it, it is. And, and Brunel was lucky that he was in not quite at the start of railway development, but he came in the sort of almost the second wave of, of railway. So he was, you know, really leading a time when it was all very new, not just for engineers, but for people themselves. And I think we forget the impact that that railways had on you know on the wider population because of course they'd all been used to traveling at the the, the essentially the speed of a horse-drawn vehicle if they were lucky or a, a horse-drawn cart whereas you know when the railways came they could travel you know from London to Bristol in five and a half hours instead of a couple of days on a on a bumpy stagecoach so you know we forget we've got rather blase about um about the impact of technology but when you think about, you know, railways were almost like the, the internet revolution. It, it shrank the country when when railways started to to really take off. I think you can still find that today, especially railway travel, considering in England, not as much. But, for example, in Eastern and Central Europe, we're constantly upgrading our trains, our train lines and everything else. And, for example, a train ride to my parents that takes four and a half to five hour drive takes three and a half hours by train. Which is incredible in itself. But then you've also got train lines like, for example, Warsaw to Berlin, which takes six hours to drive and it takes six hours on the train. So there you haven't got so much of a development and being able to be opened up plane ride only an hour, by the way, which is so much more convenient. But anyway, enough of my rambling. Let's talk about Brunel. So tell us what was Brunel's engineering experience? 
Well, when he came, because he 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 started his work on on the railway, on the Great Western Railway in 1833. But before that, um, his background um, was not really in railways. Um, he he had, as a young boy, had been sent to France by his father, and of course, his father is a a really pivotal part of the story. Marquis and Barbrunel, um, who was you know probably arguably as talented an engineer as as, as his son. Um, he was an emigre from the French Revolution, uh, fled to France, uh, came back from France and then started to work um, in uh, the naval yards. He invented a machine for making the blocks that you see on ships for for um, rigging. And that's how Brunel ended up being born in Portsmouth, of all places, um, in 1806, because his father was working in the naval dockyard there. And um, he was, uh, Isambard Jr. was sent away. Uh, to France eventually when the revolution was over to, to have a sort of technical education. Interestingly, university education, he did spend some time with a prominent clockmaker called Breguet, who possibly gave him that idea of an attention to detail. Um, but he was self-taught. He came back to to um, to England and ended up working in his father's office in London, working on all sorts of projects, bridges. Um, and then obviously... Is he came to uh, to fame really working with his father on the Thames Tunnel, which was a project to build literally the first uh, foot tunnel underneath the River Thames um, in London, and it was there that he sort of learned his trade. And it, I guess, in a way, his whole career was um, des- predestined by his father, who always wanted him to go into the family business, and um, and so I don't think Isambard really had much choice but other than being an engineer, um, and so. He he started working on the Thames Tunnel. It was a difficult, pro, a, a very difficult um, project to work on. You can imagine uh, digging a tunnel under the Thames, very close to the surface. Um, the, the water kept bursting in, and eventually, um, in eighteen twenty eight, there was a serious uh, flood, and Isambard himself was injured because he'd ended up working in the tunnel because his father found it so difficult. He was supervising an engineer. He was washed along the tunnel in the dark. Can you imagine how frightening that must have been to have been washed along a tunnel and only, and washed off into a, a side tunnel and then rescued by one of his team who'd literally grabbed him by the collar and stopped him from drowning? Um, and so after that accident, he, he, um, he had to go and do some recuperation and uh, eventually ended up in the city of Bristol, which is where the story really starts. Um, a time when you know people used to go to Bristol to take the waters, a bit like they did uh, taking the waters to go to uh, to Bath. Um, there's a place in Bristol called the Hot Wells, and uh, Bruno came there, spent time, um, and as an engineer, he sort of he really grubbed around for work um, initially, looking for various things, but won the a competition to to build a, a fantastic bridge across the River Avon at, at Clifton, the suspension bridge. That brought him really to the attention of merchants in the city. Um, and that was really how he ended up getting the job as engineer for the Great Western Railway. But he'd not really worked. Amazingly, he'd not had much experience in railway engineering per se. Um, I found when I was doing some research, he he had a job interview for a railway called the Newcastle and Carlisle, which is right up on the border um, in Northumberland, which he didn't get. Um, and he did a few other little, tiny little projects of surveying, but he didn't have much experience. And I, I guess probably at that time, in the early 1830s, there weren't that many engineers, railway engineers around, because railways were very new. So you had the Stevensons and some of the engineers up in the northeast of England. So 
um, when the merchants in Bristol wanted to have a railway built, you know, they didn't cast their net very far, interestingly, and I found no evidence that they approached the, the Stevensons to build their new new railway. Um, so Isambard was was interviewed initially to do the survey of the railway um, and got the job in, in 1833. Out of curiosity, do any of his projects still stand? I mean, obviously, before he became a railway engineer, does anything still stand today? Well, the Thames Tunnel is is still in existence. Um, and in fact, there's a great museum called the Brunel Museum in Rotherhive. You can go and visit. Um, so that's still there because, again, the tunnel was um, a long project that they ran out of money. It wasn't actually finished until 1843. Um, so you can still see that. Um, there are a few dock works that he was involved with around the country, one in the northeast that still survives a little bit, but not much evidence. Um, he did tended to do very, you know, small, little, small contracts. He surveyed the route of a railway um, from Birmingham to Gloucester, which um, in the end they didn't use his work because it, it seemed to be too expensive. But there's not much evidence of of, of much he did before he really came to, to prominence with the, with the railway. Of course, the bridge, the suspension bridge, you know, certainly for people who live in Bristol um, is a, is a landmark and, um, Again, that was a project that started in uh, the early 1830s and took a long time to, to to be completed and was never completed in in his lifetime. It was wasn't actually opened till 1864 after he died. Um, um, like many Victorian engineering enterprises, funds were always quiet, um, and it was easy enough to get the money to start these projects, but to finish them sometimes was a lot more difficult and um but the, the bridge is a symbol i mean it's certainly a symbol of brunel and it's a symbol of the city of bristol um and he called it his first love but work really only um uh, struggled along certainly in the 1830s and he by the time he got involved with his railways he was less involved with the bridge so um it, it it's like it's really that more modern uh in the 1840s and 1850s heritage that survived so moving on, he actually does start his career with Great Western Railway. How does his career progress? What does he end up doing? Oh, that's quite a, that's a big question because he did so much. <laughs> I think that's one of the things that's so unique about Brunel is that, you know, he was a true polymath. He could turn his hand to almost anything. And I think um, the period of history that we're looking at, engineers had that opportunity. As the century progressed, engineering became much specialized um so you would have a mechanical engineer or you would have a marine engineer um at the time brunel started his career in the in the early 1830s engineers like him were able to turn their hand to you know all sorts of things so brunel started uh, he was appointed as i mentioned uh, the engineer of the great western railway in 1833 but by the end of the 1830s he'd also designed steamships he'd done bridges um you know brunel was able to um to do all sorts of things and he was a very restless um person looking for new opportunities um and you know he was that was one of the things he was why he was so creative in a way that he you know he was able to embrace new technology he was attracted by new technology at the time so as well as being a great engineer he was also very adept at picking new technologies um they weren't all successful, and we can maybe talk about that a bit later on. But you know, he was he he was certainly a man to be going forward rather than going backwards, and uh, certainly somebody who was um, 
never really happy to re repeat himself and also not to necessarily repeat what other engineers had done, which, again, is one of the things that makes him unique. So he ends up proposing a line, doesn't he? What makes this specific line architecturally different than any of the other propositions that are going on in the country at the time? Well, I mean, his his job really was to, yes, was literally to, to, to survey the line from London to Bristol. The merchants had wanted to link themselves with the city of London because Bristol at that time was losing out to Liverpool as a major uh, maritime centre. In the 17th and 18th century, Bristol had been a you know a really important port, clearly funded by um, the slave trade and by the and by the trade that came from that, so tobacco, sugar, that kind of thing. But by the certainly by the eighteen thirties, Liverpool had become a much bigger um, and a more important port. And one of the reasons why Liverpool had become important was that it was linked to Manchester by a railway. And of course, that was the thing that um, really spurred people on in the city. And they realised that, you know, this was where they needed to be. So in terms of your original question, the thing about Brunel's Railway was it wasn't, I mentioned this a little bit, just a little bit earlier. It wasn't like any other railway. He he invented almost a complete railway system. So he wanted, you know, he called it his the finest work in England. That was his description of the railway. And he decided he would create a conception of a railway so it would have its own distinct uh, track, its own distinct route, its own distinct stations, uh, locomotives and rolling stock. So it, it was a complete railway system and it wasn't a carbon copy of the kinds of things that Robert and George Stevenson had been doing elsewhere, um, which is a positive and negative. But I was think I've you know I was thinking about I've been thinking about this more recently. In a way, it's it sort of the route and the, the track mirror really the kind of thing that we are looking at in terms of HS2, in terms of fast uh, railways, direct railways, high speed railways. And so his his conception was of a high speed intercity railway, um, which had very flat gradients, which for railway uh, locomotives are very important. Um, there were places where the gradients were a bit more um, challenging just because of the geography. But the line coming out of London is very flat all the way to Swindon. And they used to call it Brunel's billiard table because it was so flat. Um, but it was a high speed railway with long sweeping curves. Uh, there weren't any tunnels. There were the first tunnel coming coming from London was literally in in box, which is almost on the outskirts of Bath. So, again, those kind of engineering works weren't required. Um, and so and also it was very grand in style. So if you look at the buildings that he built for for the railway, he was making an architectural statement. So it wasn't just a workaday building. They were buildings that were landmark buildings because of how uh, really the way he thought the railway, the importance of the railway. So you get stations like Bristol Temple Meads, which was the you know one of the first te passenger terminuses. Uh, which is a very grand building um, in a in a sort of almost a medieval style. Um, and then later on, of course, you've got Paddington Station, you know, one of the largest terminuses ever built at that time, you know, almost like a cathedral using um, using that uh, new technology of glass and uh, and cast iron. So his railway was sort of really making a statement and, you know, nobody had ever really seen anything like it. Um, and just to add any, just to add it even more complication, he made the track gauge different. So railways had been built. And when I say track gauge, I mean the, the distance between the rails 
um, of a railway. Now, the what's known as the standard gauge today, it's four foot eight and a half between the rails. Brunel's railway was built to what he called the broad gauge, and that means that the gap between the rails was seven feet. So that was considerably different and not the same as any other railway that had ever been built. He'd done his research and felt that that was, again, helped to him to run fast trains, uh, larger trains. Um, so it did make the GWR very distinctive. And I think that's the thing that comes across so strongly throughout. Does it truly make a difference? Did it, uh, in the sense, did it actually make the difference in reality rather than in theory and on paper? That's a good question. They had a they they discussed this at a royal commission in um, in 1845 and 1846 at great length. And um, in theory, it, it it did because you had much. If you think about it, the carriages were bigger. They could carry more. Um, they could carry more passengers, uh, more goods, and the trains could be bigger and faster. But of course, the problem with the broad gauge was it was fine on its own, but when it met another gauge, there you had the problem. So we had these things called breaks of gauges at places like Oxford and Gloucester, where the the rest of the railway world, north essentially north of the uh, of Brunel's railways, were still building standard gauge uh, railway lines. And so, of course, if you wanted to travel, for example, from Bristol to Birmingham, you travelled on a Brunel line up to Gloucester. Then you got off the train, you walked across the platform and got on a, a standard gauge train to go to uh, to Birmingham. And you can imagine how chaotic that might have been. And then add the complication of goods traffic. Um, and that was a, a, an issue that was never really satisfactorily um, really agreed. Brunel had always had this idea that they could use containers, that um, which is something that, of course, is common nowadays. I mean, shipping containers are used all the time, but... In the 1840s, it really hadn't been um, talked about very much. So you can imagine how, again, you know, the disruption of um, having to move goods from one wagon to the other. And there are lots of really lovely contemporary accounts. I found a great contemporary account in the British Library of a from a from a carter and uh, who was uh, essentially using moving goods around the country, and he complained bitterly about the the chaos at places like Gloucester where his goods that he was moving were getting damaged, delayed. And you can imagine how labour intensive it was to, to move things. So, you know, if the whole of the country had been built to broad gauge, it would have been wonderful. But the reality was that the broad gauge, even in the 80, by the 1840s, was, was in hundreds of miles, whereas the standard gauge, there were thousands of miles of track. And you clearly, they weren't going to convert it um, all to broad gauge at that point. And so eventually the government agreed that there should just be one gauge for the country and it would be standard gauge. Um, it took years to convert it and it wasn't until 1892 that finally the broad gauge disappeared. And so that was a sort of relic of uh, a remnant of Brunel's great idea. Um, and like some of his great ideas, it cost the people who had to um, operate them money and it probably cost the GWR millions of pounds in the end to convert over a, a long period. So not all his ideas were great. But when the going back to the 1840s, his self-contained GWR was a fantastic railway. So he creates this amazing railway line. And what does he actually do next? Well, it's interesting because when I was researching it, my book is sort of talks about, you know, his the empire of railways that he designed. And it's difficult to know whether um, whether he whether he had a grand plan or whether it was more organic. Um, 
he always it, the intention always seems to have been that he wanted to build a essentially a network of railways that that uh, moved away from uh, the Great Western, which initially just was from Bristol to London, um, with a branch to and it had the original line had a branch to Gloucester and Cheltenham uh, noted and a and a branch down to the south, uh, probably through Trowbridge. Um, and so, you know, even before the GWR was completed in 1841, he was being commissioned to um, to be the engineer of other railways that would link in all, you know, and, and if they were his railways, they were naturally going to be broad gauge uh, with a with one exception, which I could come back to later. But um, a lot of these um, railways were independent companies or nominally independent. What you usually find is that um, railways like, for example, the Bristol and Exeter Railway, or the Bristol and Gloucester Railway had independent investors, but they also had in investors and directors who were already involved with the Great Western. So the links, the, the GWI didn't take these companies over initially, but they had sometimes controlling interest or certainly quite an interest in the running of these railways, which essentially were feeders. So, um, you know, as the GWR was finished in 1841, you could start to get in railways into places like uh, down to Taunton and into Cornwall, north into uh, over the Cotswolds from Oxford up to Wolverhampton, and then south down into um, really into the south, uh, going towards Weymouth and that and Salisbury. Um, so the, the network started to gradually expand, and Brunel himself ended up as the engineer for a lot of these railways. Inevitably, by you know as the nineteenth century progressed. These railways were absorbed by the Great Western themselves because some of them were relatively small um, and eventually they all became part of um, the GWR network. Um, and a lot of them are still around now. That, so, you know, a lot of the, the, the routes that you would travel to the West Country, um, the South and to the to the North from, from here uh, were all uh, Brunel designs. Just trying to find these maps and apparently uh, all I'm finding is Australia. <laughs> because <laughs> you've got me you've got me intrigued now i want to see what these railway lines look like so uh, while while we're going to move on to the next question i'm <laughs> going to see if i can find some more maps to visualize this because even though we're a podcast and we do everything by sound it's still interesting to be able to look at certain things when you do do podcasts so i kind of get this kind of bug and i'm like oh my god i have to know a bit more about this so we'll move on to the next question. While we're doing so, as you're speaking, I'm going to have a look. And mm. I would also advise some of our listeners, if, they, if they've if they got your books, I'm assuming your book also has the the maps as well. There is a map in the book um, showing the extent of the broad gauge. So that, yeah, you can do that. Um, and if Fabulous. I can find a link, I can maybe put a link on to, um, uh, for a map onto, uh, onto your podcast um, website, if that's helpful. Perfect. We can put a, we'll put a link into the description because that's, mm. it's, we all love a good map. I've just got to tell you, that's we, we just love a good map. So you do no, and well, I'm I'm absolutely the same. So yeah, no, absolutely agree. Okay, so here completes this line. Do Great Western at this point have ambitions to expand? Because you've touched on this already. Mm -hmm. Can we delve into this just a little bit deeper? Mm -hmm. I think um, that they did um, up to a point. They did. Um, but of course, the, you know, there was this network of railways that were were all in, uh, independent to start with, because sometimes, certainly in the 19th century, a lot of the impetus for these railways came from the areas that they were serving. So, you know, for example, the South Wales Railway um, 
you know, the, the impetus for that railway came from the business community in that area who felt they ought to be linked to uh, the rest of the country. Um, the same with, um, say, the Bristol and Exeter Railway, which ran down through Somerset from Bristol, not surprisingly, to Exeter. You know, um, everybody at that period, everybody wanted to be linked to the railways because railways were the coming thing. Um, and so I guess the GWR probably did want to to take over these companies. But certainly in those early days of the 1840s, they probably didn't have anywhere near the capital to do that. Um, so they tended to have um, an interest in them. And they also had what railway um, historians would know as running powers, which meant that they could run their trains over those lines. Um, and some of the lines they actually entered into agreements where they would actually run the trains on behalf of the railway company. Um, you know, so the link was it was very organic. And uh, as I said re just recently, that the ultimately the GWR took over these companies. But um, the capital required was huge. And of course, one thing to mention is that, um, you know, Brunel's uh, line from Bristol to London was two and a half times over budget when it was completed um it originally going to be it was originally going to be 2.8 million and um it ran very much over budget as a lot of those projects did again because you know nobody had ever really built um a railway on that scale before um and you know costs as we know with large projects even today tend to overrun um and they were learning as they went along so you know the share, poor old shareholders of the great western railway had to cough up that money um, and the and the company had to go out into the markets to 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 get that extra capital to finish it so you know in certainly by the time the gwr was opened in 1841 the railway company was probably not in a great position to be taking over huge uh, numbers of other railways um, but as time went on obviously they they were absorbed um, so you find these big, as I say, these big companies, other railways were set up. Um, and Brunel was a, you know, he was a workaholic. He was he was always looking for work. And so when an opportunity came along, you know, he, he took it. Um, a great example of that is the Taff Vale Railway, which ran initially from Cardiff to Merthyr in South Wales. He was offered the opportunity to do that um, in the middle of, again, while he was building the GWR. I mean, one thing that comes across when you look at the research is, you know, how Brunel actually fitted it all in is amazing because, you know, in from the, the time that the Act of Parliament was passed for the GWR in 1835, he was then in, involved with the um, the GWR. But then he took on the Taff Vale Railway in 1836. He was also designing his first steamship, uh, the SS Great Western, and working on all sorts of other railway projects. So, you know he how he did this juggling act is is really hard um uh his poor old assistants must have been run ragged by requests for him but you know you re you read his diaries and look at his um look at his appointment diaries which are all very uh, fascinating and he was never in the off you know he was either out on the road surveying the route of a line going to visit people um you know he he's his uh, work life balance was pretty much um, uh, stacked to, to work rather than um, than play at that time. Very interesting. So I've just found a map and I'm looking at 1941 when the railway was completed from Bristol to London because in the other maps, the consecutive maps already shows that little bit of gap between Bristol mm. and London. Mm. And it's interesting to see how London and Portsmouth are connected and Bristol uh, and Birmingham and Liverpool, Leeds, Manchester, 
Nottingham and Newcastle by 1941. So that's, that time period, literally within a matter of years, you've got all of this, I'm assuming hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles of, of railway line. It was it, that early period between sort of 1840 and 1860. That was the really a point at which the railway network in the UK blossomed. And as you say, all those major uh, major um, towns and cities were linked up by railway companies. And part of it was through the, the what we now know as the railway mania, when there was this huge boom in building. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, that was the point at which um, all those major places started to, to do. And if you look at that map, I mean, the one big area that doesn't have very much in it is Wales. Certainly, there's hardly any. There would hardly be any railways in Wales. So there were certainly gaps in in the um, in the network. And sort of by really by the 1870s and 1880s, there was very there were very few places in the UK that didn't have a link to a railway, whether it was a main line or a little branch line. Um, and so there was a lot of duplication. And of course, that then came that that sort of duplication came home to roost really in the in the 50s and 1950s and 1960s when railways started to be cut back um because you know there was a lot of a lot of this competition was was really duplication uh, by railway companies but certainly when brunel was building you know and designing his railways um you know he was working in a, a, an environment where railways there were, you know a lot of these places had, had not been linked by railways and so they were desperate to be to be part of the railway network and if you think, for example, about Cornwall, which didn't actually get its railway network uh, link really till 1859, you know, rail, uh, poor old Cornwall was cut off. And, and you can imagine it was already a long way from London. Um, and so the, the the impact of the railway for people in Devon and Cornwall was huge um, because they, you know, that part of the country was finally um, linked to the capital and to, to the rest of the country. Um, which again was a huge revolution. It's incredible. It's got maps all the way up until uh, uh, 1911. And you look at the difference every, I think it's like every five to 10 years, these maps here. And suddenly you've got all of this yellow and then you've got all of these red lines and they just increase and increase and increase. But I've noticed that in 1879, uh, and even in 1891, Scotland's been kind of forgotten about, really, especially the northern parts of Scotland. A lot of that's to do with geography, I think. Um, so, yeah, the number of railways in, in, in the, particularly in in that part of Scotland, is 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 fewer. But I think that they and the engineering difficulties of building railways um, in Scotland, you know, were tremendous. And so, yes, so some of the lines um to to the to the highlands were quite late um in, in terms of development certainly in comparison to certainly to the rest of the country Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Right, enough of my ranting. Let's go back on track. <laughs> so he ends up going to work on the South Railways line. God, that's like a South Railways line. Uh, eventually, doesn't he, afterwards? Yeah, I mean, the, the I think you mean the South Wales Railway. Um which is yeah i mean it's that's an even longer railway than the um the great western when it was promoted in parliament um uh it was much longer because it was going to run right from essentially from gloucester right across to um the west coast of wales and i mean the rail the, the that that railway had really two drivers behind it one of them was um obviously the coal business in south wales because that was huge and starting you know you were talking about the industrial revolution so the by the 1840s, you know, coal production was really ramping up. Um, not all of it was going to travel um, by boat, uh, which a lot of it had done from but to the rest of the country. This was a huge market that that uh, could service. Uh, but it, there was also a further um, driver, which was uh, being able to have a link to um, the south of Ireland because uh, ships, ship maritime traffic across the Irish Sea would open up the markets of um, uh, of, of, of Southern Ireland, cattle, agricultural uh, traffic, um, and so that was again one of the reasons that um, that they wanted to build the railway. In 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 the end, that uh, the Irish traffic never really came to much, par- partly because of the tragedy of the of the famine in Ireland, which then affected the um, uh, the economy of Ireland really dramatically. But the original idea was to to have a um, to have a terminus at, at Fishguard, uh, right on the west West Wales coast, uh, which would link then over to to Rosslare. But that was abandoned, and they ended up building a station um, in in Pembroke in uh, Pembroke Harbour, uh, a place called Nayland, meant that trains could run right through. But um, the South Wales took a while to build, partly because Brunel originally had the idea of building a bridge across the River Severn to get to um, from England to Wales, um, which um, was was um, was dismissed by the uh, by the authorities because they felt it would obstruct shipping going up and down the River Severn. Um, it's ironic that eventually, obviously, there are two Severn crossings now, road crossings. Um, and he even had the idea of building a tunnel under the River Severn, which, again, came to pass um, a few years later. Uh, so that eventually they, they, he had to admit that they'd have a rather um, roundabout way to get to, to Wales, which was to, to essentially come from London, go to stop at Swindon, go over to Cheltenham and Gloucester, and then from Gloucester to come down the, um, uh, the coast of, uh, of South Wales through Chepstow, Cardiff, Swansea and on from there um, and one of the biggest projects that he did on that line which was was the a fantastic bridge across the um, uh, the River Wye at Chepstow which was one of his really one of his um, engineering triumphs and led to really helped him to test his ideas out it's made of wrought iron uh, and the, the things that he learned from that he used then on probably on his best known bridge which is the Royal Albert Bridge which crosses the um the uh, uh the river tamar between between devon and cornwall and you were mentioning about things that have survived and the royal albert bridge is probably you know one of his engineering masterpieces a huge bridge um uh, that crosses the um uh, the river tamar so 
the Chepstow Bridge uh, took a while to build, but once that had been completed, um, again, people could travel to the capital from Wales very quickly. Um, but again, the, we mentioned the gauge. Ironically, the amount of coal that they ended up shifting was was relatively modest because all the railways that were running from the coal mines down to the coast they were built. They were standard gauge, so um, they tended to go over or under Brunel's railway, which ran sort of east west across the coast of South Wales. So most of the most of the coal ended up being uh, transported by other railways and not um, not the South Wales or the GWR. So, which was a which was a great uh, great shame. Fortunately, the South Wales was a relatively prosperous company, and unlike the GWR, he actually brought it in on budget, which um, which was certainly um, uh, 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 something to be uh, admired, um, unlike some of his projects. I mean, you've mentioned some of his strolls already, so it wasn't all rainbows and cupcakes and posies for him. He obviously had a very difficult life at the beginning because the you've got the severe failings, especially including the SS Great Eastern and the Gage Wars, as you literally mentioned moments ago. How did these actually end up affecting his work and his health? Well, I, I think I've sort of already mentioned that his his method of working was quite um, was quite tough um, because he was um, he was a very strong character. And if you you know, there's a huge debate, certainly amongst uh, Bruno historians, there is um, a big debate about, um, you know, how he treated people, um, the way he worked. Um, and like a lot of creative people, you know, uh, he wasn't the easiest man to work for. And he was, um, some people would, you know, if you were taking an extreme view, say he was a megalomaniac, but um, he was certainly in the Victorian uh, viewpoint, you know, he was he was the man who was in control. And one of his biggest failings was that he found it really difficult to delegate. So, of course, everything that um, that he worked on, every bit of paperwork came across his desk, tended to come across his desk, and he would, uh, his assistants really would then struggle to do to make decisions without his say so because they were frightened that um that they he wouldn't agree with him so um so he tended to work long hours you know certainly in those early days he would work long hours um checking correspondence um writing to people seeing things i mean in the brunel institute here at the ss great britain we've got many of his um sketchbooks and notebooks and his diaries and his work diaries so you can see the kind of days that he tended to have and that must have had an uh, an effect on um, on his health. Um, he changed his views sort of half in by the sort of late eighteen forties. I think even he had realised that he couldn't go on working twenty hour days, you know, sleeping in a carriage as as he was going from place to place. And he did try to change his work work um, style a little. And we've got the diaries from when he had it. He had an office in Duke Street in London, and. Um, he would tend to do sort of a week of meetings and he would have meetings from seven o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock at night, one after the other with different people. Um, and then he might go to, he had a house in Torquay that he rented. He would go down to the, to, to Devon maybe for a, for the weekend or have a, have some time off. But that kind of frantic pace really started to, to get to him. Um, and then he was involved, you know, the, the gauge war was, um, there was a parliamentary commission um Brunel was heavily involved in arguing the case for the for the broad gauge and then he was involved with um steamships um the great western i already mentioned the great britain launched in 1843 and then the great eastern which was his final ship 
um, which he started to think about in the early 1850s. And it was, you know, it was the biggest um, ocean liner in the world. It was on an enormous scale. Um, and that was a project that really um, put a strain on his health, uh, on his physical and mental stress, uh, health, really. The company, again, I'm starting to repeat myself, was short of money. They struggled to get the money to build this massive ship. Um, he worked with another maritime engineer, John Scott Russell, and they famously had a, a, a difficult relationship. And um, when it came to trying to launch the ship, many, I'm sure some of the podcast listeners will know, they couldn't get the ship off the um, uh, the side of the River Thames where it was being, um, uh, being built. And it took um, almost six months to actually float the ship off. Um, and uh, that was a very difficult uh, time for Brunel. Uh, but also, you know, he was, as I've mentioned earlier, he was working on multiple things at, um, at any one time, uh, which must have put a strain, a strain on him. And he, his health was never good. Um, he'd had this rescue in the Thames, uh, which uh, Thames Tunnel, which you know was uh, had, had involved him having you know quite a lot of time to convalesce. And then he had several close shaves. I mean, one of the other things that comes across in the book is that he was incredibly lucky. He, um, uh, When he was um, involved uh, working on the SS Great Western steamship, they were, they took the ship out into the Bristol Channel for a, for a test. And um, there was a fire in the engine room. Brunel, in typical fashion, went to investigate, stepped on the ladder, which was made of wood, and fell into the into the hold of the ship. Fortunate, well, fortunately for him, landing on one of his um, uh, his colleagues who broke his fall, um, but then landing into in there, um, he um, was also involved. One of the things that I discovered in my research was that he was involved in a serious train crash in 1845 when um, a train came off the track bet- um, uh, coming out of London, um, and I think most of the carriages went down the embankment. Brunel fortunately escaped from that. Um, and then, of course, you've got his his famous um, habit, which was smoking cigars. And um, he famously was would smoke between 20 and 40 cigars a day, um, which couldn't have done his health um, a lot of good either. So, um, you know, it's not surprising that, I mean, he died at the age of 53, which is, you know, considering that he was not a, a very, very affluent man, but certainly quite affluent, was quite um, quite a young age, really, for him. I don't know if he was lucky, unlucky, smart, or I don't know. I'm I'm struggling for words with this man right now. <laughs> how how many things did he? He should have. He's a cat. He he must have had some sort of nine lives. He must have. He really must have done. I mean, I think. Um. Yeah. He he um. He lived life at the edge. I think sometimes. And um. And then there's a and something I didn't mention as well, which is another well publicised thing, is that um. He was he he was. He loved. He did spend some time at home with his kids, and he loved doing conjuring tricks. Uh, and he famously did the um, with the trick, which you quite often see um, magicians doing, which is to to um, try and look like you're swallowing a, a coin and then bringing it out of your ear. And he um, was doing this with, I think, with his children, uh, with a half sovereign, except that he swallowed the half sovereign, and it was lodged in his trachea. And uh, it took weeks um, to to eventually dislodge this. I mean, it could have been incredibly, uh, again, it could have been um, uh, the end of him. Um, and uh, in typical fashion, he invented a little contraption, which was like a, a, essentially a, a, a large board, which could be pivoted. 
which um, they turned upside down. So he was turned upside down um, and the, sur the surgeon started to essentially uh, hit him on the back. And eventually the coin was dislodged from his trachea and uh, dropped out into his mouth. And you can tell the kind of um, that it was it made the newspaper headlines. People were, uh, you know, the coin is out. Mr. Brunel's coin has been um, has been dislodged. So, you know, again, that was a was a, a close call. Uh, by um, by many um, uh, many fetch of the imagination. Well, this intelligent, brave, very lucky man is considered to be one of the Victorians' greatest engineers. What do you personally think of his legacy? It's a complicated question. That I think I think that's the thing about him, and we've just sort of really been talking about that. I think he was, you know, it, the traditional engineer as hero um, image that you have of of people like Brunel. I think that's changed a little bit. Um, you, you know, he was a man of, um, you know, with so many different uh, roles and so many different um, bits of character. So, you know, his his legacy was was the, was really this, the uh, engineering genius and and the design of the buildings and the um, uh, the things that we can see now. You go to Paddington Station, you know, it's a fantastic place to look. The bridges that you can see. Um, the tunnel through Box uh, through Box Hill, just outside of our two miles through um, solid limestone. Nobody had really done anything quite like that before. You know, he was a pathfinder, um, and so you know, I think the thing is that um, you know his legacy is is still with us. Um, uh, the fact that he he set up this um, network of railways. You know, you were talking about the maps. You know, you look at the map of the railway network today in the south of England and the west of England, you know, it's all Brunel. Pretty much all of it is Brunel and it's still there. So, you know, he laid the foundations for, you know, for railways um, uh, as we know them now. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of his buildings have still survived um, because they were well made. Um, you know, a lot of them are listed buildings um, because people, uh, they were built to last and they're solid, uh, but they have flair. And, um, you know, you nothing Brunel did really was work a day that was not his style as i said at the beginning you know he said that the gwr was you know going to be the, the, the finest work in england and um that was his idea he always said you know i don't you i'll build you a railway it doesn't necessarily have to be the cheapest but it will be the best and that sort of attention to detail is something that really you know has meant that things have lasted um but he was a conundrum you know he was like uh, you know to get his results um, you know, he was a hard man to live with. Um, and um, but then again, maybe of his time, um, you know, the, the idea of uh, Brunel certainly would would struggle in the work environment today. Um, but um, uh, but having said that, I mean, he was per, people described him as very charming. I'm not entirely sure that all the all his assistants would have necessarily said that when um, when he was in a bad mood. But, um, you know, he could be a very charming. He was cultured. He was a man of the arts. So he was a sort of all round, really polymath, which um, which is why people still are still interested in him. I guess that some of the nineteenth century railway engineers that are that did important work, you know, they had they didn't probably have the kind of public image that he that he had in his lifetime and since his lifetime. I mean, the fact that we're still talking about him today, you know, is is some. And you look at you know, my book is only one of a series of, of of books on on him since really since the 1950s um and i describe in my you know in my introduction that 
you know, I couldn't have done it without the the fantastic things that have been written about him before. Um, but he's always somebody who can find something new, um, you know, shed new light on and talk about in a to a new audience. And I think that's the interesting um, thing that, you know, it's a story that will continue um, right into the future. And, you know, railways are going to be with us, um, despite all the, the politicking that's going on at the moment. You know, long term, long distance ra- uh, rail travel is what we need in this country. And I think, you know, again, the engineers of the engineers who built Crossrail, um, the engineers who are looking at HS2 and all those things there, you know, all that sort of goes back to the time of Brunel, really. Tim, this has been absolutely excellent. I have had an incredible social history rather than technology, which has been fantastic for me because I can't wrap my head around all those technical things. I think Brunel was a very interesting and very complicated man. And he is well worth remembering. He's left such an incredible legacy and he's done such incredible things that shouldn't be forgotten. So could you just remind our listeners the name of your book? My book is called Iron, Stone and Steam, Brunel's Railway Empire. So it's, um, yeah. Fabulous. We will get that into our bookshop. So we help our local bookstores. You get a slice, we get a slice. And that company, beginning with A in the South Americas, will not be getting a cut to build their rocket into space. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.